Have you noticed? Have you noticed this about 2018 and pretty much since you can remember? How easy it is to live a distracted life. Distractions are like lantern flies. They're everywhere. And we should probably step on them every opportunity we get. What I love about our culture right now in southeast Pennsylvania is the profound sense of unity each of us have around lanternflies. You know the drill. If you see a lanternfly and don't kill it, you hate nature. People are writing down names. We live in a world where we walk around with an endless portal to distraction in our pockets. We can waste hours scrolling through our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. And when we're done, we feel worse about ourselves because we feel like our lives aren't quite as good as some other people's. Or we get judgmental because we say quietly inside, I would never post that. We can purchase almost anything our hearts desire or our credit limit will allow through one magical app called Amazon. We can be distracted for the rest of our lives and waste time entertaining ourselves with Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime Video or whatever else you choose. And the greatest distraction of them all, at any moment, whether you're at the beach, enjoying your son or daughter's Little League game, out on a romantic date with your spouse, or sitting in church, you can check your email and that beckons your attention elsewhere. Read a statistic this week that 15% of people check their email during church. I feel like judging someone. <laughs> it's a joke. And I'm only talking about the distractions our smartphones create. I didn't even mention our huge televisions. I grew up with a 19-inch TV. Now that's considered a computer screen. 700 channels. And then, what about this? We are so busy, aren't we? Like the summer is winding down and you can feel the wheels start to turn. September is coming. We're gonna get busy. We're gonna run 100 miles an hour. My kids are in every activity I could get them in because if they were bored, I'm a bad parent. I had a lot of boredom as a kid and look at how well I turned out. <laughs> I'm not here to preach to you this morning about the danger of smartphones. I have one, I use it, I go on Facebook, I watch Netflix, I have a TV that's bigger than 19 inches. I'm not saying this to any way to say like, man, this is the real evil in the world. Here's what I'm really saying. We are all in grave danger of living a distracted life. And here's the problem with living a distracted life. When you are distracted, it keeps you from doing something wildly important with your time, thinking. When we are so busy, we don't have time to think. What we end up doing is we don't reflect on who we are, who we're called to be, and how we're living. When we live distracted, we don't find or create space for reflection. 
as I thought about the psalm that, I was going to, that I'm going to share with you this morning, Psalm 15 starts with a question that is of ultimate importance. Psalm 15 asks and answers a question that is weighty and crushing and that requires us to focus. It requires us to be humble. It requires us to think. It requires us to be honest before God. And Psalm 15 does not just ask a question like for this 30 minutes. It asks a question that we need to reflect on often. It's a question that I'm wondering if a distracted culture ever asks themselves. Here's the question. Psalm 15, verse 1. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? These words sanctuary and holy hill are references to the location of the presence of God. The question being asked, and I don't, can't really think of a more important question than this, who may enter the presence of God? Can you think of a more important question than that? Who may enter the presence of God? Here's what Psalm 15 says. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? Here's who can do it. Ready? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury or interest, and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. One thing that is clear throughout all of Scripture is that the means of being accepted by God is always through what? Faith. You got to know that one. That's on the test. Faith. God has always accepted people based on their faith, not on their performance. Jesus made it exceedingly clear that what God requires of us is belief. In John chapter 6, verse 28, someone asked Jesus this question. What must we do to do the works God requires? Let me put that another way. What does God want from me? What does God want from you? Look at Jesus' answer. This is astounding to the answer to the question, what does God want from me? The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's what God wants from you, belief in his son. But here's what we often miss, and frankly, here's what gets diluted in the church overall. True faith, true belief, always leads to a changed life. Many of us have probably heard the story when Jesus fed the 5,000. If you haven't heard the story, here's what happened. There were 5,000 hungry people, at least 5,000 hungry people. There was no food, and Jesus took a little boy's lunch, five loaves of bread, which I think is a lot of bread for a little boy, by the way, but that's a story about carbs for a different day. Five loaves of bread and two small fish. And then Jesus fed 5,000 people. And after Jesus did this miracle, what happened to Jesus? His popularity began to skyrocket. And then he left town. So naturally, what do people do? 
with rock stars. They follow them. They try to get near them. They want to be groupies. They want to get close. When that same crowd that Jesus had finally fed found Jesus, Jesus knew why they were there. They wanted to eat again. The majority of the crowd didn't really believe in who Jesus was claiming to be. They just wanted free food. I hope you don't come to Spring Valley for the free food. But if you do for now, that's okay. But our heart is you would believe in the one God has sent. That's Jesus. Good. The moment Jesus called them to surrender, the moment Jesus looked at the crowd of 5,000 people who were like, feed us again, Jesus. And when Jesus said, okay, eat my flesh, drink my blood, people are like, I'm not that hungry. What happens when Jesus calls people to radical faith and obedience? They walk away. That's what happened with people in Jesus' day. Jesus would lay, out, lay it on the line. He would love people. He would heal people. He would feed people. He would open the eyes of the blind. And then he would say, now lay down your life and make everything about me. And people are like, peace. True faith always results in changed living. True faith always orients our desires around wanting to live to please God and be in fellowship with him. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith. And no, we can't earn our salvation. But we are certainly called to live in a way that reflects, our, reflects that our lives belong to Jesus. That's why the Apostle Peter in the New Testament reminds us of an Old Testament truth. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So this brings us back to Psalm 15, right? What's the answer to the question? Who may enter the presence of God? There's six answers to that question. Here they are. If you want to enter the presence of God, here's who you need to be. First of all, the blameless can enter the presence of God. He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous. Blameless means free of blemish. This does not mean you're living perfectly. It means that the goal of your life is to please God in every situation. You strive to do the right thing, not according to your opinion about what's right, not according to cultural norms, but according to what God's word says. To be blameless means that when you do the wrong thing, some of you, you just came for this this morning, when you do the wrong thing, you seek to make it right as soon as possible. That's what blameless people do. Yes, they fail, but when they fail, they make it right as soon as they're aware that they failed. Blameless people are deeply concerned with honoring God in every detail of their life. Charles Spurgeon said this, If we are not positively serving the Lord and doing his holy will to the best of our power, we may seriously debate our interest in divine things. For trees which bear no fruit must be taken down and cast into the fire. He wrote that sometime in the 1800s, so that's probably outdated, right? Yeah, he was just quoting Jesus there. Here's the second thing. Second kind of person who can enter the presence of God. The truthful, who speaks the truth from his heart. People who are ready for the presence of God are people of truth. The idea is not so much you speak the truth from your heart, you speak the truth in your heart. 
like what comes out of your lips and what's in your heart match. What you tell yourself about who God is, is true. It's this way of living that you are painfully honest with yourself about who you are and what God requires. Like during this message, being someone who speaks truth from his heart or being, speaking truth in your heart, you would be saying to yourself during this message, not I disagree with this, but okay, heart, this is what God requires. Where are you at? You tell your heart the truth. Here's the third thing. You're a loving neighbor. You're a loving neighbor. The kind of person who can enter the presence of God has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man. And this was messing me up this week. The way we treat others is a heart indicator about our spiritual readiness to live in the presence of God. What if the presence of God was more about how we were loving one another opposed to how good our band sounded on a given Sunday? Like what if the presence of God really was present when we loved one another well? In particular, there is a direct concern about the words we use about others. Here's a shocker. I like to talk a lot. And here's the sin that I think I wrestle with the most. Sinning with my words. I can't tell you how I process, or I, I want to tell you how I process being stressed out. I find someone to blame, and then I talk about how they're letting me down. And then Psalm 15 comes along and says, Joe Terreri, you are not ready for the presence of God when you're casting slurs on your fellow man. To slander someone is to tread over someone with your words. Have you done that this week? To cast a slur is to use your conversations as an opportunity to drag someone else's name through the mud. You aren't ready for the presence of God if you are gossiping, judging, and putting others down behind their backs. I spent some time repenting this week because I had done that. You know what's amazing to me? How often the scriptures connect our faith with how we treat people. Here's the fourth thing that you need for the presence of God. You need to be a lover of good. You need to be a lover of good. Listen to this, listen to this statement. Who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord. Despising a vile man is about agreeing with God about the kind of behavior that offends him. This is strong language. This doesn't mean that we should hate people. This doesn't mean that as Christians we should not love people because they're living in a vile way. However, some of us have wrongly thought that God is somehow pleased with everyone. God loves everyone. That is true. And God wants to be in relationship with everyone. That is true. But it's also true that there's a whole lot of people in the world living as his enemies. And we're not ready for the presence of God if we're not clear on the nature and character of God. That he considers those who have not turned from their sin enemies. That's all throughout the New Testament. And on the flip side, 
You have a deep love and respect and association with those who love and serve Jesus. Does your heart honor and respect those who love Christ? Here's the fifth thing. And by the way, if you're starting to feel weighed down, that's the point of this message. There's going to be good news, but we got to feel the crush first. The reliable who keeps his oath even when it hurts. People who keep their word are ready for God's presence. You said you would do something, guess what? That matters to God that you do it. You made a promise to your children, to your boss, to your friends, to your spouse. Like that promise said, I'm gonna love you. I'm gonna love you till death does us part. Listen, when you're married, you become completely aware of the shortcomings of the person in the bed next to you. That's why you took an oath. That oath sustains the hard times. Marriage is not based on feelings and your happiness. Marriage is based on a covenant oath to your spouse and to God. Maybe some of you this morning, you need to keep your oath even when it hurts. And I always say this when I talk about marriage. If you are being abused, leave that situation as soon as possible. Do not hear me saying, stay in an abusive relationship. Hear me saying, keep your word. Here's the final group of people that enter, or here's the final characteristic of people who enter God's presence, the just and the generous. They lend their money without usury or interest, and they don't accept bribes against the innocent. Now, before you think this doesn't apply to you, let me explain it. What would happen is people who are down on their luck financially would desperately need a loan. And so there were no banks, there were no credit cards. A lot of us, we don't really need personal loans because we can just put it on credit. But in, it, when this was written, there were no banks, and your only hope was a generous friend. And what you were hoping would happen is that they would not take advantage of you and give you a loan and say, hey, I'm going to give you this money, but you're going to owe me 20 or 30 or 40 or even as high as 50% of interest. People with money had the power. It's a lot different than today. People with, that was a joke, people with money had the power. Lending money with usury was really a way to take advantage of who? The poor. God hates when people take advantage of the poor. God loves generosity to those who are struggling. Here's why many of us don't believe that. Because we are American, for the most part. We have earned everything we have, and people who can't get their act together and earn like this are deficient. I am superior to them. Why would I help someone who's been irresponsible? You don't say it like that, but that's actually the core of our thought process. Why we don't care for the poor and the hurting sometimes. I'm not saying that's all of us. I'm not even saying that's any of us. 
But sometimes culturally, we don't love the poor because we feel like we've earned it. We feel like we've made ourselves. Yeah, we pray and we tithe, but ultimately, let me show you how many hours I worked. Do you know that the scriptures say in Deuteronomy 8 that it is even God who provides you the strength to produce wealth? Here's what that's trying to say. You haven't earned anything. And what the psalm is really saying is, is how we have treated the poor, not taking bribes. Bribes would pervert justice. Rich people would bribe judges so the judge would decide in favor of the rich and not the poor. How we treat the poor prepares us for the presence of God. And I know, I know how the defense attorney works. There are no poor people in my life. This doesn't apply to you. Don't worry about this. You're going to be going to lunch soon. Here's the question. How are you treating the poor? Are their needs your needs? How does this actually get fleshed out? Let me be honest. I don't always know. But when I read the scriptures, I know I don't get to turn a blind eye to people who are in need. And so here's what I would encourage you to do. When you see someone in need, ask God if that's the person he wants you to help. And don't spend a whole lot of time praying about it because his heart is always generosity towards the down and out. Should you be wise about it? Yes. Does throwing money at problems always solve things? Absolutely not. But our resources can be grace to people. Giving people a hand up instead of a handout. These are good things. And sometimes just buying someone groceries just because they need it is beautiful before the Lord. Okay, so that's who can enter the presence of God. We're all in, good. What is Psalm 15 really saying to us? That the kind of person who is ready for God's presence is a person of integrity. They are blameless, truthful, neighborly, good, reliable, generous, and just. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So we're going to have a little test at the end of service today. Here's some questions that you can answer about your own life. Are you ready for the presence of God? Here's question number one. Is your deepest desire to please God? Is your deepest desire to be blameless and righteous in every detail of your life? A.W. Tozer said, most Christians don't hear God's voice because we've already decided we aren't going to do what he says. Every one of us has competing desires. It's normal for your heart to have motives and temptations and desires to live selfishly and independent of God. You are going to want to make decisions that are contrary to what God desires. However, is your deepest desire, is the guiding principle of our decision-making in our personal lives as a church to honor Christ in every detail of our lives? Question number two, do I tell the truth to myself and others? Are you a person of truth? Are you telling yourself the truth about yourself? Are you being honest with yourself about your priorities? Are you being honest about your sin? Are you lying to yourself about your secret sin? 
Are you being honest with others at work, with your spouse, on your taxes? I know. When I talk to people about taxes, you know what they love to tell me about? The government. Welcome to living under authority. Like God cares about honesty, as David said that we studied last week in the inmost parts. Is lying a normal part of your life because, quote, everyone does it? Question three, how am I treating others? Do you love people? I had this thought this week, or I heard this thought this week, and I said, yeah, this is, uh, this is true. We often struggle to love the people we love, let alone the people we don't like all that much. Isn't it true that even you struggle to love the people you love? How are your relationships? Are you known as a kind person? The older I get, the more I realize this. Kindness is underrated. What would the last person who checked you out at the grocery store or waited on you at a restaurant, what would they say about you? What would your kids and your spouse say about you if you have one? What about the people who know you best? Would they say you treat them well? What person in your life have you spent the most time complaining about? What are you saying behind their backs? Maybe even on the way to church this morning. Who have you casted slurs on this week? Question four. Do I agree with God about good and evil? One of the greatest lies of our day is the lie that love equals affirmation of everyone's behavior. That's what the culture is telling us. To love everyone means to affirm all that they do. That somehow it's loving to tolerate every cause, every lifestyle, every choice that people make. If God is love, and God calls certain things evil, isn't it obvious that we have a different definition of love than God does? I think there are some who think that God has an outdated perspective on our very advanced way of thinking in 2018. Many take the very clear teachings of Scripture about things like marriage and the sanctity of life and sex outside of marriage and violence and racism and loving others, and caring for the poor, and somehow convincing ourselves that God winks at sin and understands the complexities of my life. What kind of God do we have if he never disagrees with us? If you have a God who doesn't disagree with you, who's God? You are. You are. That's, that's, that's the reality. If God doesn't disagree with you, you're God. Here's the last question. Am I generous? Are you generous? I wish this question wasn't so easy to answer, but it is. Go home, look at your bank statements, and see where your dollars go. All of us are in a different position financially, and that's true. But all of us are called to a life of sacrificial giving. Not just about giving to our church, I don't think that's what Psalm 15 is about, but also to those in need around us. When God gets a hold of our hearts, 
He wants to help our hearts let go of making our lives about money. God loves when we give cheerfully and sacrificially, not under compulsion, not out of guilt to those in need. So, how you doing? Here's the reality of Psalm 15. It's crushing. The standard for entering the presence of God is impossibly high. If I asked all the people in the room this morning who would say, according to Psalm 15, even just looking at this past week, you're ready for God's presence and I asked you to stand, we'd probably think you're lying to us if you stood. Why? Because none of us are ready for a holy God on our own. Not a single one of us can stand before him on our performance. So what are people like us to do? Ignore Psalm 15? No. No, Psalm 15 can be a guiding principle around our behavior. I heard something amazing this week about Psalm 15, that it's possible that Jesus based his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount partly off of Psalm 15. Like Psalm 15 was a text Jesus was using to teach people about ethical living as his followers. Psalm 15 matters. But I'm crushed by it. I'm crushed by it. I don't always want to honor Jesus in every detail of my life. The person who lies to, be, lies to me most about who I am is me. Jesus calls me to love my neighbor as myself, and I often find myself loving myself more than anyone else. Sometimes things that God calls vile can be attractive to me for a moment and I see in my heart sin a desire to do what God says is gross I don't always honor the godly sometimes I complain about them I've casted slurs on my fellow man I slandered people in conversations what about you are you crushed by Psalm 15? What are we to do? Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23 says this. It's about the work of Jesus. Paul says, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Or another way to put that, you weren't living in his presence. You were cast out of his presence because of your evil and sin. Yet now, he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, 
He has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and you are blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. As you stand before him, brought into the presence of God because of the death of Jesus, called holy, blameless, spotless, no fault in the presence of God. How is that possible? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. But I love verse 23. But you must continue to believe this truth. What truth? Only Jesus makes me right before God. Only Jesus' death on my behalf gives me any right to stand and preach in the presence of God to God's people. Not my righteousness. Not your righteousness. Not how you've done perfectly this week. It's only Jesus. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, every man, woman, and child can come and enjoy relationship, fellowship into the presence of God. How? By believing the one God has sent, Christ Jesus. Psalm 15 will crush you. Only Jesus Christ can lift the weight. Does it matter how we live? Absolutely. But we must not drift away from the gospel. Don't you dare drift into earning. Don't you dare drift into your performance, making you feel good about yourself and acceptable to God. That's not the good news. The good news is 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ willingly got on his back and had his hands and feet nailed to a tree. And that tree was raised up. And that man who was God in the flesh spilled his blood and absorbed in his body the penalty for your sin and my sin. And that's what we need. And that's who we are. And that grace is what motivates you to live for Jesus. It's not the law. It's not all of the requirements of the law. It's grace. Maybe you've never heard this before, but this is key to the rest of your life. The motivation for the Christian life is grace. It's grace. Look to Jesus. Experience his grace and live for God. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we have a message like this and Lord, it does kind of just land on top of us. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we just kind of look at our lives and we're like, I have not done Psalm 15 perfectly for a single day of my whole life. 
I don't know if I've done Psalm 15 perfectly for a single hour of my whole life. And so, Lord, who, we are, who are we as the people of God? We are those who claim Christ. We are those who proclaim Christ. We are those who choose not to drift from the assurance and the hope we have in Jesus. Yes, God, empower us with the Holy Spirit to be Psalm 15 kind of people, to be blameless and righteous and truthful and neighborly and good and reliable and generous and just. But God, let us do those things because we're already accepted, because we've already been brought into the presence of God, because we are already blameless in your sight through faith in your Son. Oh God, may the good news never become old news to us. Lord, we trust you. We love you. Help us to live for you this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.